Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty and this week I have three guests, Professor Becky Allen, Ben White and Matthew Evans and we're talking about the book that they wrote together, The Next Big Thing in School Improvement. Now the book itself is really about why we get fads in school improvement and why the com- problems and complexities of schooling make it very difficult to find universally applicable solutions in education, much as we might want to find them. It is a fascinating read and I strongly recommend it. Hopefully this podcast will whet your appetite to learn more because we talk about some of the ideas and arguments in the book and if your copy will become anything like mine it will be covered in in scribbles and notes because what they have to say will really challenge what you thought you knew about school improvement as ever this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. I am joined by Becky Allen, co-founder of TeacherTap. Hello. Hello, Becky. Lovely to have you back on the podcast. Ben White, uh, assistant head teacher of a secondary school in Kent. Hello. Hi, Ben. And Matthew Evans, who is a secondary head teacher in Gloucestershire. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much, all, all, all of you, for making time to join us today. Um, I'm going to just dive, dive right in. So, how did the idea for the book come about? And what was it like writing a book uh, as a trio during various stages of the pandemic? Kick off how what it was like writing the book or um, how the idea came about. Uh, Becky and I first met on the a DfE workload group looking at schools data use, um, I think three or four years back now. And at first we thought we'd write a book about data use in schools, but we soon lost interest in it on the grounds that you can't really use data to do that much important work within a school, or at least it certainly was, it had inflated its ego far too far. And so that got us to thinking a bit about policy waves. So the idea that in our time in education, ideas emerge gain support and then they dominate for a bit just like data did then they crash and this gave led to us writing a talk or and a post reflecting on this theme which then led to linking up with matt um which made us actually start writing the book i think yeah we met we met at a a conference so i was delivering a talk at research ed and ben and becky really kindly came and sat right in the front row of my talk to put me off and then uh, and then we got talking afterwards and I'd also started writing a book, um, funnily enough, about a similar thing about complexity. So um, once we got talking, we decided we would we would do that together. And then um, and that was about I think was it three weeks before the pandemics kicked off. I I can't I'm useless mm-hmm. at remembering these things. Do you remember Becky? Yeah, it was just a couple of weeks and before the pandemic. So I think when we agreed and said, hey, let's write a book together, I don't think any of us thought for a moment we would do it without being able to meet up at all in person to talk about the book. But I think, you know, writing this book, I think, acted as a form of therapy for all of us. And I think it would have, regardless of the times in which we'd written it, because the book and writing the book provided a framework for battling through, I think, some of the struggles that we were having trying to make sense of the education system that we all work in and why it works well and how it's dysfunctional. But I think, you know, during a pandemic, um, we inevitably spent a lot of our weekly book chats talking about what was actually going on. So Ben was, you know, a frontline teacher and actually tried doing live lesson instruction really, really early on before lots of other people were trying to do it. And so he was experimenting with that and telling us what it was like. And Matt was trying to run a school that wasn't quite open and then became a full time government contact tracer for you know as a head teacher and then I was dealing with various policy issues going on particularly with Ofqual and the exam grading problems and I was homeschooling my own kids Um, but I think you know the thing about being a trio the point of writing together is to write something that's better and something that's different than the sum of its parts 
and it should be something that no individual's capable of writing. And I think that's necessarily a messy process. I think, you know, we didn't have a great plan at the start and perhaps we should have. The book really did emerge out of us working together. But that's partly because it has to, because the kind of the joint persona of who the three of you turn out to be when you're writing together can only emerge once you start trying to do it. Um, and in this particular book, you know, every single chapter is written by everyone. And it certainly hasn't been less work. I think Matt was astonished having written a book on his own, how, how difficult it was to write a book together. Um, but I think, you know, I think the end product is, is great. And it's certainly a really enjoyable way to write a book. Yeah, that's it's really um, fascinating to, to to hear how how you just how you described it there, and I think it is you know people have founded companies and done all sorts of things with people that they've rarely met or never met mm. during during this time, and I guess it it, it, it you know we, we've been able to interact more frequently in some cases with something like Zoom than we would have done if we were waiting for face to face meetings and. And as you say, lots of lots of other things going on for all of you, um, but but clearly um, you found you you found a, a really effective method for working together to to produce a book, and and you mentioned there the the, the different experiences you were having uh, during lockdown. But what do you think your your different um, experiences and kind of careers and perspectives add to the mix? Well, I mean, we don't just do very different jobs within the education system. I mean, Ben, ben is now an assistant head, but he's only recently been promoted out of essentially a full-time frontline classroom teacher role and matters ahead and me working in policy um, and in research. Um, but we also have really different disciplinary backgrounds. So, you know, Ben teaches psychology and sociology and has a particular lens through which he views the education system because of that. Uh, Matt's disciplinary background is business and economics, but really has this focus on management theory and leadership and organizational change. And I'm an economist too, um, but I think about things from a very different perspective because I've spent my research career thinking about the questions of what happens in schools when policymakers try to get them to do something. Um, and we were really informed by this, um, this quote from this American sociologist, Seymour B. Saracen, who we talk about a lot in the, work, in the book, and he really inspired us to write this book. And he said, like, how everyone, how we view a school is determined by our relation to it. And the complexity of schooling is more than one person alone can grasp. And so from this quote, like one of the themes of the book um, emerges, which is that all of us hold in our head, any of us working in education at any time, an imagined world, an imagined school, an imagined classroom. And often this imagined world, this imagined school deviates really a great deal from the true reality of what's going on in schools. And it's this imagined school that we are actually acting on when we seek to devise policies that improve schools and often you know they, they don't work out because the imagined school is very different from the one you know that actually existed so we were hoping really by writing a book together we would bring these tensions in the different perspectives that we have and these lenses um, to bear on a system and hopefully create a more realistic picture of what we felt was likely to be going on in the education system. Yeah, and I think that's that's so powerful because oftentimes, um, I guess in, in in some of these sort of social media arguments or or, or or things that appear and that people go, oh, but that person is on this side of the argument, so of course they're going to say that, and I'm over here, so I'm kind of less inclined, you know, to to understand. Or I'm I'm on the front line in a classroom. That person hasn't been in a classroom for however long, and 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 as you say, sometimes it, 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 if you you can combine these perspectives together and get to something um, more more complete, um, it's some it's a stronger grounding for um, a conversation. Um, but yeah, thank you for that answer. And you know, your your book really grapples with this um, concept of school school improvement. Um, and and these these waves of of the next big thing in school improvement and and what comes across very clearly is school improvement is is a concept fraught with difficulty. Why is that the case? 
But that's I, I guess that's what the book's really about. And, and we we start the book by making two points about why that's difficult. So the, the first point is about complexity, that schools are really complex places and the school system is really complex. Um, and, and when we use the term complex, we use it in a particular way. So, so quite different to something being complicated. So I'll, I'll give you an example of that. So if I, if I take my phone, for example, my phone is really complicated. You know, it has lots of working parts. Um, and if it goes wrong, what you have to do is you have to fix that in some way, maybe replace the battery or uh, replace one of the one one of the chips in it but that's quite different to a complex system so when we talk about complex systems in the book we're talking about things that aren't fixable in the way that complicated things are so you can't just focus on one part of that system remove it and replace it or, or repair it in some way um, and uh, and that makes it much more difficult to, to to improve the system to improve the school so I'll give you an example of why we think things are complex in schools one of the things we talk about is nested systems. Uh, that, that's, that means that there is a complex system within a complex system. So if we take something like the human brain, for example, which is often said is the most complex thing we know of, perhaps in, in the universe. Um, so teachers are day in, day out dealing with human minds and how they work. And then the human mind is, of course, within a classroom environment where there are maybe 30 children and the teacher is trying to get all of those children to learn a particular curriculum. And if you scale that up further, the classroom is then multiplied across the whole school and then the schools are multiplied across the system. So this idea that these complex systems are nested in each other means that the system itself is, is really very, very complex and trying to change that system is really difficult. So that, that's the first thing we start the book with. And then the other thing that makes it really difficult is our ignorance as well as the system. So we, we make a case in the book that there are big gaps in our knowledge about schools and about how to improve them. For example, uh, we don't yet really know very much about how people learn. We've got cognitive science, which is doing a fairly good job of making some inroads into that, uh, but still we think ha has a long way to go. And then we also don't know very much about how you improve a school. People do improve schools, but that doesn't seem to be the same way in every school. We don't really have a blueprint for how you improve schools. Um, and possibly most importantly, that we don't have very good knowledge building technologies, by which I mean, we don't have a really effective way in education of learning more about school improvement and then sharing what we know with other people. So if you put those two things together, the complexity and the ignorance, what it gives you is a, a really difficult challenge when you're trying to improve the system and what you tend to get is people doing things like trying to copy ideas without really know what it what it is they're copying and how to make that successful in their own school. So fundamentally, that that's the premise of the book: that complexity and ignorance makes it very very difficult to improve a school. Putting those kind of you know saying kind of uh, essentially it, it's it, it's com it's very very complex and there, there's so much that we that we don't know could could actually sort of feel a little bit defeatist I guess um uh to, to some people's uh way of thinking but I think what you what you do do in the book so so skillfully is um really really con convince and, and 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 expand on these um the, these these subjects so well the topics so well that you the yeah you 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 really do understand um what you're what you're what you're saying by those um by those words complex and and ignorant um in 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 absolutely the right way and right it does it does sound quite defeatist doesn't it but actually what we're not saying in the book is that you can't improve schools um that's a really important point to get across what we're trying to do is make a case for, for why it's as difficult as it is because people who work within and i guess around the system um find it very difficult to improve the system and what we're trying to do with the book is get to the bottom of why it feels as difficult as it does but that certainly doesn't mean that it's impossible of course to improve schools because it happens and, and we do we do improve schools no exactly exactly so and as you say really really important um point to get across there but you do really kind of take on some some orthodoxies that have that have grown up in education and and really challenge established thinking which is very exciting 
Uh, and and uh, yeah, and I, I imagine that some people <laughs> might kind of read the book and be a bit disappointed that there isn't a neat a neat solution or kind of um, easy alternative to some of the myths that you bust. And do you think maybe as a sector, we, we need to get a bit more comfortable with the idea that there isn't always a right or, or clear answer to a problem, uh, no matter how much we would want there to be? We think that's hopefully one of the outcomes of reading the book is that people will be that bit more open to thinking about things in a more in a more nuanced manner and it was bringing together complexity theory and the um, extent of our own ignorance that got us thinking about fundamental problems that sort of underpin school improvement so that's one of the lessons that I think we learned through writing it and it took a while for these two ideas to crystallize but we think that if you're trying to improve schools you face two fundamental problems and whilst starting out kind of front to centre with those may initially seem pessimistic, ignoring them from the start is, 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 a, is, a, is a fool's errand. So this is kind of where we, where we kick things off. So one of the problems we think is that learning is invisible. So whilst we might talk quickly and smoothly about a lesson and what the students learned or what we'll be teaching today, um, Graham Nuttall, that we pick up on a few times in, in the book, would be the first to say that has very little to do with what the students in that classroom individually picked up and learn in the lesson and even less to do with what they can tell you about the lesson in a year five year or ten years time so we have learning is invisible but that's the main stock in trade of schools and so any attempt to improve things smoothly will be problematic because we're working in the dark to an extent and then secondly we have um, large-scale schooling in which students come in conveyor belt right in a class of 30 and they work their way through a, a series of year groups um, in a conveyor belt type fashion something that Saracen talks about as the lockstep model that assumes a degree of similarity between those students that probably doesn't exist. And that in itself will produce problems as well. Now, there are different ways of resolving those issues, but I think the more informed understanding is to accept there'll always be a compromise. So if we're working with 30 students over the course of a year and I have a course that I need to teach, this came out actually when we picked up on a moment that occurs in classrooms so we talk about this moment that a focus group of students um, first talked to me about where the teacher starts a lesson and it becomes very clear very quickly on or very early on that the, the students don't know the thing the teacher needs them to know because perhaps the students say it or their faces look blank. The teacher generally responds by saying you should know this to the students. Often the students feel bad about that. Sometimes the teacher just carries on regardless, because that was the lesson plan. Sometimes they'll take a step back. But that's built into the conveyor belt or lockstep problem within schooling. If I have 100 lessons to teach psychology A-level, at some point I'll need to move on. To plan that, I need to decide what students would have learned by week one, and then by week two and by week three and so forth. So underneath kind of all the rhetoric around school improvement, we have those two fundamental problems and accepting that they exist perhaps pushes back a bit against naive expectations about how they might be changed. So we think it's more about living with them than it is fixing them. And accepting that there needs to be compromise actually can help us when we're making those difficult school decisions about what to focus upon, what to do next, how to improve teaching in a particular class. We think, whilst in the short term, thinking about those problems is challenging or even troubling, denying them will lead to frustration because we can't resolve them and confusion, which we've all had when we've inherited a solution or a way of fixing things that we think should work, when it doesn't, without understanding or tackling those fundamental problems, we'll be frustrated and also confused and more liable to jump onto whatever the next big thing happens to be. So it's a bit of a lengthy answer, but we think thinking about those problems can help us to respond more sensibly to the, the next big thing when that arises and maybe deal with it in a more nuanced manner. Yeah, and and I have to say, um, and I'll and I'll not be able to recall exactly the correct language, but you you realise sort of how imperfect the model, like just the model of a lesson is, but but what is your what is your alternative to, to you know chunking up the the curriculum and you know organising time across a school timetable. Um, you know, to the points that you're raising there about expecting children to, to move in this orderly conveyor belt through through knowledge. But 
yeah, as you say, you, you know, um, you, c- you can't spend all your time railing and saying, but I'm, you know, I can't teach a lesson because there's no point to doing it as a lesson. It's, you know, flawed. <laughs> you just wouldn't get anything done. Um, so, yeah, I think it is it is really, it, it, like you say, there's, there's, there's a balance um, uh, thinking about how you a- address these. And, um, yeah, and, and, and I guess those... Um, the the myths you're 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 bur- you're busting or the kind of bubbles um you're you're bursting are these um th- these these things that um present themselves as kind of universally um applicable um or you know or or seem to or seem to work um and yeah that 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 I think that you know is, is going to challenge quite a lot of of people's um thinkings or or thinking or or beliefs when they when they do get their hands on your on your excellent book so listening to that yeah. um your 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 question or response there did get me thinking about a process we took a while to pin down this reification mm-hmm. so when something that is just purely a construct or a convenient way of describing things or a routine process within school over time, because it becomes so ubiquitous and part of the scenery, it becomes solid. And we think that's what happens with the lesson, because it 100% makes sense to talk about my lesson and to plan my lessons and talk about what students are learning within lessons. And that's, that, in, that also is a useful way of talking about and telling stories about what we're doing. And it's very useful. But when we allow that faux solidity to kind of obscure the complexity behind it, then we're heading down a road that might lead to simplistic solutions. Because then I can start saying, here is my description of the curriculum. In each lesson, students will learn X, Y, and Z. By the end, they will all know this. No, they won't do. They, they won't. They'll learn some very different things and they'll forget them at different rates. And forgetting that is perhaps where um, we're hoping some of the concepts in the book can maybe get us thinking a bit more closely. Exactly so. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I really love how you you finish each chapter with some some complex advice and some questions to reflect on. Um, so, given what we've been we've been saying around around school improvement, um, I'm I'm curious to know what you might say to a head teacher or someone charged with um, improving at a school who's listening to this podcast and maybe says, okay, well, you've t- told me all the things that, that won't work um, in, in my school. What what should I do? We were really um, mindful in the book of, of falling into the trap of, of not really providing any solutions. Um, but, but equally, we were quite tentative about being too certain because the whole book really is about being uncertain. But we did decide to add those um, those points in at the end of each chapter, as you say, to to get people to think about some of the things we were we were suggesting and and also maybe to, to point people towards some solutions. So um, if I give you a, a couple, and I'll talk here from a school leadership perspective in particular, right? Because that that's that's my job. That's what I do. So as Ben said, one of the things we were hoping to encourage people to do in the book is to accept the complexity of the school system more than perhaps we do. Um, And and we talk in the book about, we call it complexity denial, which is uh, a natural human tendency to think things are simpler than they actually are because it helps us do our jobs. It helps us, you know, go from one day to the next um, without being overloaded and overwhelmed too much. But in the book, we encourage people just to take a step back and to look at the behavior of the system and to understand better some of the complexities and the nuances of how things actually work within the school system. And we think if people can do that, uh, then they will be able to make possibly better decisions um, and uh, perhaps avoid some simplistic, some naive behavior and decisions. So that's one thing we encourage people to do. The other thing I think is, I would say certainly to head teachers and school leaders is get to know your school really well. Becky made reference earlier to this idea of the imagined school that we all hold. We have this idea of what the school is, what it is we're trying to improve. And the better we can get to know the real school rather than the, the model we've got in our heads uh, and to make that model more um, nuanced and, and, um, and realistic, uh, again, the better we think people will be at improving the school. So that might mean actually understanding what goes on in classrooms, what what it is that pupils are thinking about their learning, what the different belief systems that the teachers have 
the different ways they behave. We focus a lot in schools on uniformity and trying to get people to behave and do things in the same way. But we encourage people in the book to maybe welcome a bit more diversity and understand some of the diversity within the school um, a bit better. So th those are two key things really, is it come to terms with complexity, trying to get to know the school system better than we do, looking at how it behaves and how it changes over time. Uh, and in doing so, hopefully make better decisions. Thank you, that's that's really helpful. And um, you, you you identify, as we've, as we've said, when we talked about the kind of, um, uh, the, the, the challenges presented by how, how school systems kind of have, have to be designed realistically about, you know, years of pupils moving through them in this, this lockstep uh, fashion. But I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, if, if money and time were, were no object, what might we do instead that could be, that could be more effective for learning? I think we, we would say that the, the answer different people give to that question in itself is quite important because there is this contentious question about what schools are really for and that's not ever really neatly resolved anywhere and so if we were going to say money was no object and you can do what you want to make the school as effective as possible that's going to be pinning our colors to the mast and saying this is what schools are for so for example as a classroom teacher i might say well the most efficient way to teach a student a new thing would be to assign them an individual tutor so if money was no object and people were available then we could give each student an individual tutor that taught them at a rate that was just sustainable for them, the information that they particularly, or the courses they particularly wanted to be studying. And that meant when they finished their education, they had learned all the things that they were capable of learning up to the age of 16 or 18, or, and all the things we think are important. But that starts to bring into play trade-offs because once we made that commitment, there are lots of other things that a school does and provides beyond this um, academic learning and that's where the complexity of school starts to come out as well because there may be some trade-offs that are already built into the system that are some one of the reasons why we don't have that individualized approach and although there are these trade-offs I don't think any of us look at the status quo and think this is as good as it gets and we've got the trade-offs right and so to give an example of something I personally am very interested in, it's the repeated failure, and I perceive it as failure, of primary maths. By failure, I just mean that most children fail to master most of the primary maths curriculum, according to the marks they got on Key Stage 2 SATS papers. And for me, that's not okay. Um, and it's a classic case of um, an example of failure to acknowledge some quite difficult perennial problems in, in, in policy making and also just a policy narrative that's just colliding with reality in quite an ugly way. Um, you know, the curriculum is just way too large. I think there's probably not any plausible kind of pedagogical organisational innovation that would ever lead to all primary pupils mastering this massive primary curriculum. And yet you have this policy narrative that takes place. And I, I think Nick Gibb was a particular fan of the way that primary mass is at the moment. And he would say, well, we need an ambitious curriculum. And, you know, that seems incredibly compelling, except to those who understand how crucial mastery is in these hierarchical subjects like maths. And then there's like the perennial problem of, OK, you know, a lot of people say we want a smaller mass curriculum, but nobody will ever agree what it is we're not going to teach anymore. So anytime anyone kind of suggests, shall we drop something? Today, somebody on Twitter said, shall we stop teaching Roman numerals in primary mass? To which there was a barrage of people saying how absolutely critical it was that Roman numerals are taught in primary mass. So we have children who leave without basic arithmetic fluency, but we must teach you know new, uh, Roman numerals but then also you know the other thing that's going on underneath all of this in primary mass is just our unwillingness to acknowledge the lockstep problem I mean what if some children will take three times longer to grasp a new mathematical concept than some other children how on earth are we ever going to set up a model that on the one hand allows all these children to progress in lockstep fashion as a class through the primary education system and yet somehow pulls um, kids out for some corrective instruction? But how do we ever create enough corrective instruction to allow that to take place? 
you know, so that's that's an example of a fundamental problem that we fail to acknowledge when we're trying to talk about what on earth are we going to do about, you know, the problem we have with primary maths that then leads to the problems we have in the as a country with really poor mathematical literacy in adults. And I guess, yeah, if I come in on that, that those are great answers. Uh, from a from a secondary school point of view, I think one of the main things I would want to solve if we had an endless amount of time and money is putting some resource into mental health, which I suspect a lot of secondary head teachers would say right now. Um, so that is one on my wish list. And I think the other one on my wish list would be to stop um, seeing schools as the fix for um, the inequality in wider society. I talked before about the nesting of one system inside another and schools are clearly nested within wider society where there are all sorts of um, inequality issues that clearly need resolving. And yet it's often schools that are put forward as the fix for some of society's ills. And uh, what we do know is that schools can do so much in that regard, uh, but actually are not as effective as possibly some of the other policy levers you might pull. So if we could put more money and resource into some of those policy levers, then it would probably make the life uh, of head teachers and leaders within schools a lot easier than it currently is. Indeed. And uh, yeah, thank you. And it's really um, kind of key issue there is, yeah, what ex exactly is a, is a school system kind of for and, and, and trying to do? Uh, and um, yeah, and you, I guess until you until you know that again, doing, you know, improving is also um, more fraught with difficulty if you don't quite know where you're going. And um, thank you for um, mentioning maths there, Becky. And I think, um, you know, I've seen kind of um, people responding to some of what you say about curriculum uh, in 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 the book, and um, what 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 really struck struck me is, is is when you when you reference it and kind of say you know different different subjects as you say a hierarchical subject like maths is a very different kind of curriculum conversation than subjects where there's there's there there are more um, kind of directions that a curriculum can can take, um, and and in maths as you say there's a very there's a very clear kind of progression um uh there and um yeah obviously curriculum is is the sort of the the big thing of 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 the moment i just wondered if any of you had anything that you wanted to kind of um bring up with regard to to your your um position in the book on on curriculum so yeah. we we do we do have a chapter on curriculum and in some ways it might be good if if people arrived at that chapter themselves because one of the problems with critiquing the current focus on curriculum is that it is the current focus mm. and we're really mindful in the book that it's very difficult to step outside of the here and now and to say well in five or ten years time how will we feel about the things we're doing right now um, so we are quite respectful in the book of, of the importance of the curriculum and and talk quite a lot in that chapter about the the importance of getting the curriculum right but we also do talk about it as a fad um, in respect of the way the curriculum is used then, particularly by certain um, organisations and, and for certain accountability reasons, and, and how that use can make the curriculum quite faddish in the way people implement that in schools. So there is there is a chapter on it. I don't know if Becky or Ben, you want to pick up at all on that, but mm. I think it's worth reading our critiques of, of the fads that have been and gone to before you become before you get to that chapter on the curriculum and then it makes a bit more sense what we're actually saying about the fact that it is important but it but it is in another way quite faddish so i think that's i would agree that that's a that's a good way to approach it because it's more we're interested in what happens to an idea when more and more people start to coalesce around it and why they're coalescing around said idea and what it's doing for them, which brings us back to our imagined schools and complexity denial. So is curriculum important? Clearly, hugely important. Can curriculum resolve the problems we want it to? Probably not all of them. And there are a number of reasons why that might be the case. And that's kind of the dynamic we try to draw out. So, and it also links to what you're saying about the difference between subjects as well. So information and advice that might be vitally important within the context of history, where perhaps more 
heed being paid to the specific content of what we're teaching could improve may well not apply in the context of maths. And the difficulty would be for an idea to be portable enough to impose across several schools, it has to be reduced to quite this, this kind of abstract argument that begins to at least have the tendency or capacity to be implemented in all kinds, all kinds of different ways. And some of those ways it's implemented might not involve the kind of thought or precision or attendance to differences between domains that perhaps we think are important. Yeah, I think it's interesting that sort of un, unthink, almost unthinking application to absolutely kind of like every lesson, every context and every, everything yes. is, is almost what kind of, um, so, yeah. So if we go back to data and when that was dominant, the, the processes that schools implemented were often implemented without thinking about the rationale behind them, but because they were the thing that people were doing. And that in itself was a very pernicious problem, notwithstanding the issue of the data itself. And that's, I guess, the potential for anything that becomes a dominant idea within education. When it becomes the solution or something that it's important to be seen to be doing, then they can easily become implemented in ways that perhaps are not as effective as they could have been in their original context. Yeah, I suppose the important thing about all of these policy waves is that in order to be a policy wave that's transformative it has to transform what all teachers do and therefore it necessarily becomes very generic in the nature of the advice that it has to give either it's so vague as to mean anything at all and in the book we have a chapter about personalization and and that was an example of a policy wave that just people could pretty much do anything they wanted in the name of personalization in order to kind of meet the demands of, of the policy narrative um, and and you know so one of the problems that we have really specifically with curriculum and curriculum as a policy solution to fix schools is that it that is that the policy narrative necessarily does become very generic and that's quite ironic really because people who are really interested in curriculum tend to be subject specialists and they're not really interested in the generic but the moment that people use these kind of catchphrases like the ambitious curriculum that I mentioned, you know, Nick Gibb using or teachings at the top and a curriculum that's, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep, you know, immediately you start hitting upon problems where individual teachers who are subject specialists say, well, you know, that's actually a really damaging way to think about the domain of knowledge in my subject and it won't work for me. Um, but then most importantly, of course, is that is that these policy waves usually get embedded into our accountability framework and they do that through the Ofsted framework um, and they've all really done that and, and the problem with that is that then well we have these super short inspections in this country you know by international standards we have inspectors who fly in in tiny teams um, and observe what's going on in a school largely by having to have a few conversations also, we have a few conversations where we focus on the curriculum and what happens as a result is that we, you know, we're actually inspecting a narrative around what the head of department or the teacher, you know, claims the curriculum can do. And that's, all, of course, quite different, you know, the intent, if you like, to use Ofsted's language of the curriculum, that's very different from the realities of the classroom because we can all spend weeks and years designing our perfect curriculum, but the moment that it lands in the classroom, you know, the reality of the enacted curriculum and what is learned by children is going to look very different and it's going to necessarily be compromised and we can't avoid that, you know, and that's one of the reasons why the curriculum, even if on paper it can fix the problems of the education system, in reality it, it could never do that because, because the system is too complex for that. I think that's um, re really helpful to, to, to hear your, your kind of um, your, your thought, thought processes around that. And as you, as you said, um, definitely read, read the book. <laughs> And understand um, the 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 flow, as you say, of, of of ideas that have come and gone, and we are very much in this kind of current curriculum moment. And of course, you know, we've we've seen a veritable explosion of of research and evidence being used in in education. Um, you know, sometimes to 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 back up what's what's going on. Um, and given your your arguments in in the book about the things that we don't yet yet know or, or maybe can't know, where where is that sort of research energy best spent? Do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, so early on in the book, in the end, we decided we had to introduce this evidence and this argument that education research was at the moment really struggling to give teachers um, advice, advice about what products to go out and purchase, what services to use, kind of rules of thumb about how they should be teaching and how they should be running schools. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons for that is just the sheer complexity of the schooling system means that implementing something across, say, 10 different schools inevitably tends to lead to 10 different versions of the thing being done with 10 different sets of outcomes. And so the problem for research is that whereas research trades in generalizations and averages, how does something work on average? You know, for the, in the case of the, the head teacher making decisions about their school, what they care about is the particular, the case study of how is it likely to work for them. And that in the case of educational research, because of this complexity leading to diversity of implementation and outcomes, often the average doesn't tell us that much about the particular. Um, I mean, that said, I mean, at least personally, I'm not, I'm not so pessimistic about the state of research and, and you know, how much it's going to be able to help us in the future. Um, I think, you know, actually a lot of the research that's being done at the moment by non-educationalists, particularly in the intersection of neuroscience and cognitive science and broader cognitive science insights is really helpful at the moment. Like we're learning a great deal at the moment, really fast about what it means to know something. Um, why things like cramming tend to lead to forgetting taking place. We're developing more nuanced perspectives on what memory is and how it works. Um, and these things do have direct translation for teachers. They can read that research and learn something useful and help them think through the role of things like repetition, um, applying ideas in multiple contexts, uh, where fluency matters to a child and where it doesn't, and all that kind of stuff. But then separately, I think there's the more pesky question of what on earth should educationalists be doing when it comes to research, and in particular, what should the EEF um, be doing with their research money? Um, I personally would like to see them not trying to answer big questions about how large-scale things work, because I don't think you can do that in a complex system. So I don't want to see RCTs of large-scale school improvement programs, because they haven't worked out, of big um, professional development approaches and things like that. I'd like to see them focus on like much more uh, narrow and, and yet critical kind of applied areas of educational research. And to give one example of something, a rare thing I think we know something about and we've got working well, like so teaching phonics to children, at least in key stage one, we kind of have a decent research base. It's kind of okay. We've got a set of products and we know how to do it and we know how to train people in how to do it. But there's loads of areas of primary school in the three R's, so the kind of the core area that we still don't have that kind of agreement about how we should be doing things. And I think research can help in those things. So things like those readers who are good at um, phonological decoding and yet they're not fluent readers, like what is, what is the strategy for those children? Um, is there an explicit structure to developing number sense in a child that's more reliably successful than other approaches? We can't tell teachers how to do that at the moment. How should we achieve fluency in number bonds to 20 or fluency in times table recall? Like what's the most efficient means to doing these things? So these are like, for me, they're really narrow questions. They're not asking like, how should we best teach? They're asking, how should we best teach something in particular to a bit particular set of children at a particular stage of their lives? And I think those are the kind of questions we should be trying to answer at the moment. Uh, fads we've that, that you that you talk about in in the book, particularly, and that we've discussed today, um, sort of seemed like good idea at the good ideas at the time, and then it's only with sort of hindsight or deeper understanding that we can appreciate that there were there were problems with them. And the year I spent teaching was was particularly marred by thinking hats, <laughs> which I don't I don't think I ever thought was a good idea to be honest. Um, but which supposed kind of um, next big thing that you've been involved with personally like, makes you shudder the most when you think back to it? For my teaching, I remember I had a stopwatch that I put on the wall or the, on the board and said, I'm only allowed to speak for five minutes in this lesson because too much of me teaching is bad for you. 
to the students. And so I did that for a while. And now looking back, I wonder quite why or what I was thinking. But I've been told that don't don't overteach. You need to let the students do all of the work. So that one makes me shudder. The one that makes me shudder more is is the data one. I think because it I I, I was given a job as a data analyst within a school or a raising sanity that I hadn't even applied for. And it took me a while to get my head around quite what it was that I was meant to be doing or otherwise. Um, and I guess it still makes me sound because you can see the um, echoes of that kind of practice in schools around us today, the way we talk about reports and interventions and students' targets and, and the like. And I think because it's relatively recent and it was in a formative stage of my career, I think um, Matt wrote, wrote a post recently about searing memories of policy failures. That's the one that's my searing memory. Yeah, I think for I think for me, I I, I come at this from a, a management point of view. I suppose I really shudder at thinking about graded lesson observations because I suppose it was like ten, more than ten years ago. But I spent so much time coming up with rubrics for lesson observations and then going into lessons and telling people to do things that really weren't a very good idea. Um, and I just yeah, there are some specific things I have in my head where I remember saying to people, saying to teachers, well, you should really do more of this. I probably tell people like Ben, they should talk less or uh, or you Which think in general life is probably good advice. But yeah, and it's, it just makes you cringe. <laughs> and the thing that the thing I think we've got to learn about that is in another 10 years time, there will be things I'm doing now that I will cringe at in 10 years time. And as a school leader, I think that's the thing to remember is that you're never going to overcome these things. You're always going to be caught up in the moment of what feels like a really good idea. And you will also have organisations like Ofsted who um, strongly encourage you to do these things as well. And, and there was probably a good reason we were grading lesson observations, and that's because Ofsted would come in and grade lesson observations. So we were trying to get a sense of what would Ofsted make of this? Because if we've got loads of really bad lessons, we're going to be in real trouble. So I can sort of understand in retrospect why I might have done it. And there are probably things, and I, I had an Austin inspection just a few weeks ago, so I'm sure there will be things that um, I did there that in 10 years' time I'd kind of be thinking that was probably not a good idea. But we're never going to know. We just have to wait it out and see, see how bad an idea it looks in the future. I suppose for me, I trained to teach in the very early 2000s. So for me, it's the obvious one. I wasn't told about learning styles on my PGCE, perhaps because PGCE tutors are slightly behind the curve. But on my first placement school, I went to the school and um, they purchased these questionnaires that they could then give to the children on learning styles. And I, I thought that this was amazing because I'm a visual learner, you see, and I don't care what the research says. I completely you know, believe that I am a visual learner. And I suppose it's an example of just how strongly, at least for some people, this idea resonated with them and they, they really felt that they could identify with it. Now, as a teacher, I failed to ever be able to use it effectively as an idea because, you know, as a complete novice teacher, everything is so chaotic. The idea that you were going to be able to attend to the needs of your visual and kinesthetic learners in different ways within the lesson was beyond anything that you could ever achieve. But at least on a personal level, it resonated with me very strongly. And it was only when I started taking a master's course at the Institute of Education that I came across that the, the philosophers actually who were criticizing the research base of learning styles and for the first time I encountered the idea that that schools were and teachers were introduced to ideas that just weren't true um, so that was it for me. Yeah. But just thinking about our examples there's something we kept coming back to when thinking about complexity of schools is that you need to hold on to whatever you're doing quite loosely because it will, it will come and go with time. And that's the positive spin on all of this, is that despite all of that chaos in terms of the pedagogical approaches we adopted, we now look back with kind of quizzically at best, students continue to learn. Many students mm -hmm. came in, enjoyed school, and they've gone into returning to maybe becoming teachers themselves. And that's the, the positive spin of the complexity is that you can't change it quite as much as you think. And that might be to, to its benefit, because if we had run a long way with learning styles, maybe things would have gotten worse quicker that's the uh, 
Yeah, it's inherently quite a conservative system, the schooling system, because the complexity means it is quite hard to change things. It's reliant on these kind of regularities, the way we do things, the pattern of the school day and the assemblies, the breaks and lunches. It's just the way things are in schools. No one can really tell you why, but it does mean that it doesn't get battered as much as it might by policy reform taking place. Largely, kids come, kids go, they learn in the way that they always have. And I think to some extent we should embrace that and say that that's a really positive thing about the system. And in, in complexity science, you know, we talk about systems and, and whether they are robust and whether they are anti-fragile so that, you know, shocks can be um, put on the system like a pandemic hitting. And yet children did sort of, you know, still get an education and it still functioned. And the teachers were able overnight to kind of improvise and riff because actually in a complex system, you do have that kind of flexibility. It's not a rigid system to try and muddle through and do the best you can. And, and head teachers made up these kind of um, rules and policies for themselves overnight about which kids they were going to get into school and who was going to be at home, which teachers were going to be in and who was at home, because there weren't contracts that were specifying exactly what should happen. And that's, you know, a really healthy thing about the system. So I don't think we should look at this complexity and say that this is a disaster for the system. The system actually needs to be like this in order to function well. And, and really interesting what you're saying there about, about holding holding ideas um, lightly and um, we had a conversation a few weeks back on the podcast with Dr Neil Gilbride and we were talking about um, uh, adult ego development and that people at the, at the the furthest end of that being the ones who are kind of okay with a complex problem they propose a solution but tomorrow it might all be different but they're, they're you know and they can tolerate that and yeah I think I think there's there's something in that that message of um yeah, accepting that, yeah, in 10 years time, you'll be doing something completely different and wondering why you were doing it in 10 years time, but that's, that's okay. Um, that's, that's not something to, to, to dwell on and, and disturb you. Um, and is there anything that any of you would like to share with our listeners in closing? Well, I, I guess I would just pick up on that point because I know um, Neil Gilbride's work really well and we, we don't really touch upon the technical things like adult ego development within the book, but we do talk more broadly about sense-making. And we finish the book um, in a way reflecting on the fact that this is all about storytelling. It's a narrative about how schools work and how we can improve them. And storytelling is really important. The story we tell ourselves, the story we tell to other people about how to improve schools. And um, so at the end of the day, it does, it does really come back to storytelling and there is a narrative that we tell in the book and we don't know whether that narrative is accurate or truthful but hopefully it does provoke a bit of debate and provoke some thinking about how we move the system forward and how we get better at improving scores. That's a lovely note to end on. Wow yes there well there is certainly a lot to think about in your in your book and in this episode and thank you very much uh, Becky, Matt and Ben for taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions. <laughs>